0: I'm here with my guest, Yuri Brito. Yuri's down in Pensacola, Florida. He's a pastor down there. He's a writer. He's an author. Uh, it's really good to have him on. And I want to give a bit of backstory before I bring him on because uh, I kept running into him. I ran into him at Theopolis and then I ran into him at a conference in California. And I was like, I've got to talk more uh, to this guy. And it, I think at each conference, uh, he was invited to pray. Um, if you've ever heard Yuri pray, uh, he has a booming voice. Uh, as a man, you just hear the voice, and you are like he leads other men. This is a leader of men. And so I'm really delighted to have him on the show. Yuri, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Man, it's a joy to uh, hang out with you online. And I, uh,
0: I'm already looking forward to hanging out with you face to face. Lord willing, sometime this year. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be great. Well, part of the reason I wanted to have you on is, uh, you know, I've been following your stuff. I came across your stuff in 2020. I think it was through Facebook. I started friending people that had better things to say about the world than the world I had been following and uh, useful things. And so I found it both challenging. But if you read Yuri's, uh stuff online, it's it's poetic in the way I, I, I feel indulgent when I read it, like I'm eating dark <laughs> chocolate uh, because it, it really is fun. Uh, it's playful, it's incisive, and so uh, so that's how I stumbled across Yuri's writing. Um, but I, he's a curious man to me uh, because he's got a journey that I want to know more about. Um, is it true that you are you're originally from Brazil? Is that how the story goes, Yuri? That's right. I come from the
1: country that has five World Cup titles, and uh, hey, there so you go. take that, Italy.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. So when did you come to the to the states? Well. The,
1: The story is my father came to the United States in 1988 and he brought us uh, with him and he went to got a degree in South Carolina. We went back to Brazil. My father, at the age of 41, had a heart attack and died. It was a a frightening thing for our young family. I was 16 years old. And at that moment, I was teaching English for a couple of years after my father died. My mother came to me and she had a proposition that I would return to the US and um, get a degree. And then go back to brazil that was the idea well i went back to the west in 1998 and i've been here since so what turned out to a, a high school degree ended up being a college degree an mdiv and a doctorate and five kids later and a wife so that's that's the fast forward story there but god has been very gracious in bringing me from a country that at that time was very theologically in, in its nascent form brazil didn't have a very developed theology your listeners may know that Brazil is very very heavily Roman Catholic and uh, in a growing interest in uh, Pentecostalism in fact it's true that by 2050 Pentecostalism will have outgrown Roman Catholicism which is a fascinating uh, piece of statistics there but because of that very uh, unique uh, religious sort of background there is a, a, a high degree of biblical ignorance and my father was a very skilled thinker. He was a minister of the Baptist tradition. So I grew up with a, a, a very high sense of biblical authority. But that didn't come to fruition. That I didn't embrace that idea fully until I came to the United States. And um, I was mentored by some very godly men. And I fell in love with the scriptures all over again. Um, you may know the story through R.C. Through Sproul and a few other men, James Jordan. And so this is kind of where little bit of the journey where God has brought me to
0: that's great well I'm so glad he's brought you here it was really interesting when I was kind of uh, researching all these figures like James Jordan there was a ministry called biblical horizons which I think used to be in the panhandle Um, uh, part of the weird thing I was up at like 1 a.m. researching uh, biblical horizons I'm like what who are these people and um, my family hails from Tyler Texas Um, and I was, uh, looking up the church that I think Jordan was part of in Tyler, Texas. Well, it turns out his church was a stone's throw away from my grandparents' house. Well, it's a lot while I was a little baby, uh, doing Christmas, little kid doing Christmas. I've got James Jordan right over the, or right over the fence, uh, at the church there. And then he's in Pensacola or not Pensacola, but he was in the Panhandle. Um, and then, uh, of, uh, Florida and my family vacations down in Destin all the time. And I was like, I got to. I got to know more about this. There's something here. And so I started researching. Actually, a funny thing about Brazil for me, uh, when I was in college, I went on a mission trip down on the Amazon. Um, there's a ministry that does boat trips down there, really cool boat trips. I mean, you sleep in a hammock, minister to people. And it was one of my first preaching experiences was in Brazil. Uh, and so I got to preach in some rural uh kind of church down there and there was a translator uh i wanted to learn portuguese and just be a boat cap and almost dropped out of college yeah, yeah. i was like i just want to go do that kind of ministry and then god gave me my wife she she came into my life and god was like i have a different plan don't go do that uh so, so now i'm up in boulder but um but yeah we could talk about a lot of different stuff because uh from that eclectic theological background i i appreciate that um i like learning from different people um we could talk about post-millennialism we could talk about pedo baptism uh both things that one thing i'm more interested in than the, the other um so maybe <laughs> we'll have to have you back on to talk about both because uh postmill is a very fascinating uh eschatological perspective that i'm i'm inclined towards over the last two years which is mm-hmm. which is uh some of people view it ironic like how could you see things getting what they see better You know, when things obviously seem to be getting worse and I'm like, man, it's my hope in God. Like God is going to take (laughs) care of all things. He's reconciling all things to himself. Let's see where this thing plays out. Uh, God's in charge. But the things I want to talk about particularly is you've written um, on writing. You've written on writing and you've written particularly on how to um, engage in writing in a way that some people may call, use the word acerbic. Um, Dustin Messer used that word Um, uh, I had to look up that word. Um, it just has a bite to it. Uh, it's incisive. It's, it's direct. Um, and I think for a lot of evangelicals or at least the people in my background, it, it becomes across as like either unnecessary, combative or, uh, unhelpful or even reflective of a heart that may be hard. You know, I had one pastor, I was talking about how we want to change the city and see our city become a city for God, uh, in Colorado. And, and he talked about how, are you jaded? You know, you need to be careful with that, with that sharp edge. And I was like, bro, if you only know the hope I had, like it, it's uh, it's the opposite of what you see. So tell me, tell me why you write about this stuff, why you write in that style, how you came into that kind of thinking. <clears throat>
1: You know, I th- I think in some ways I've always been there, but what really has ha- had crystallized and sort of exacerbated that entire process, the rhetorical flavor, was probably during the COVID era when things became so obscenely, mm. obscenely crazy, um, and it became in in some ways it, it was almost it was almost as if the world was telling us the Ventilian line neutrality. Is gone now all of you who have been sitting in mama's basement all of you now got to come out and you have to position yourself to the left or to the right of all these issues you thought you could hide from these issues you thought you could uh, embrace this sort of neutrality you thought you could play Switzerland but now you have to make a decision to be or not to be to be a mercenary of the state or to be a servant of God And at that point, those worlds came into conflict. And so that was the point where I felt for the first time, even though I had been writing for a very long time, I had been published before that era, for the first time I felt myself. And what I began to do was I began to use the Facebook platform, Mm -hmm. which uh, offered the best, sort of the, the greatest audience, I think, that we have today in some ways. And I started to use that not just to write little pithy sayings or quote Bonhoeffer, all good things, but to write lengthy posts that would demand of the reader something more. Mm. And in the beginning, I was content with the possibility that one or two people would enjoy it. And uh, I'd have, you know, uh, Grandma Susie and my mom. (laughs) And I was content with that. But what happened was something else. What happened was, perhaps because there was plenty of time in people's hands, what happened was that that writing began to draw people um, into a, a depth of a rhetorical flavor they didn't think existed. In other words, in the past, you can approach writing or speaking through propositional realities. This is good. This is a bad move from the government. Or you can add a kind of a color to the language that draws people uh, even deeper into the conversation mm-hmm. one conversation gives you a well that was interesting the other one says huh I never thought it from that perspective right and that's what I try to do which which meant that for me um, I get up very early in the morning I would edit and re-edit and revise just to make sure that every piece of language and phraseology I was using was something that the people that it could be that it could stand alone as quotable you know that they could look at it and say huh that tastes like chocolate this tastes like strawberry and that they could put these phrases into a larger picture and say this is why i think what the government is doing is a pathetic display of ostentatious pride and bigotry and arrogance and hubris because what he's saying in this line here mm. and so that's kind of my approach it's in in Uh, In contrast to the more sort of academic flavor that you and I have been involved with, we've done some of that work, that flavor takes you to footnotes. My desire was to take the flavor to somebody's heart and mind immediately like a a punch. And that's what I tried to do. And the more I worked on it, the more I was receiving sort of affirmation that what I was doing was a good thing and that it was drawing people to the right things. Mm. So whereas in the beginning people were like, I don't know where I stand on this issue here, but uh, I had this conversation with Andrew Sandling quite a bit. The more we pressed deeper, the more we added the serration to the conversation, the more we pressed on those issues, the more it became crystal clear that one group was going one direction and the other group had an entirely different trajectory. Right.
0: Yeah, it really highlights division which I think for many people feels uncomfortable. Um and I think if you read your post, you know, it's not divisive in the sense of how many people would interpret that word negatively, but it it, it uh it is a clarifying way of writing. Um that like you said, like uh it can be really useful. And I, I had a similar experience uh with I posted an article by R, R. Reno, uh from First Things uh-huh. at the beginning of the pandemic. Um and I got I remember that hate mail. Like I didn't know. Cause yeah. I was just in my mind, I'm like, well, this is useful. This is an interesting way to think about it. Cause I like being yeah. curious and, you know, and all of a sudden I got somebody in my church saying I'm out. In fact, I don't even think you're a Christian. Wow. And like, do you realize what shame you bring on Christ by posting that article? And I'm like, what? (laughs) I had no idea. And then all of a sudden I discover someone else writing that way. And of course, kind of like uh, I've been, I've been secretly reading Doug Wilson for the last like seven years. And of course he writes that way. Um, But it's rare to see someone else uh, write that way. And so when I read your writing, it it is a blessing. What, what though has been maybe some critical feedback you've received? Have you received that hate mail or have you received kind of that, that, uh, that, that thing where you're like, people are saying, please stop, like, don't do that.
1: Yeah, I've heard all sorts of things uh, over the over the years. Uh, some of them I take as, as a high compliment, depending who the source is, you know what I
0: mean? <laughs> sure, and, um,
1: yeah. But, you know, most people will criticize me for being too lengthy in my, in my approach. Mm-hmm. And I think that is also a reflection of where we are, I think, culturally, and that people don't have to read it. But I, my goal is that after the first paragraph, they're hooked enough to read it. And so there's criticism of length, there's criticism of excessive flair, criticism of too poetic, uh, too much harmonization, too, much, too many acronyms. And they are right. All these things are there for a reason. It's very intentional. I think about <laughs> the things I'm writing. And, um, you know, some people will enjoy it. Other people will uh, – I, I love the way people will take little phrases and quote it in a different, um, you know, social media platform. In other words, I, I'm writing to grab attention. I'm not writing to be sure. one of 30,000 writers. I'm grabbing to say something very specific in a specific way that somebody can look at and say, this offers me a different kind of grammar, vocabulary that I'm not used to. And in some ways, I, I, I suppose that I've been sort of inspired by Douglas Wilson. And my, my, my advantage, perhaps, is I don't have the baggage he does as a, a man sure. of 70 years of age, sort of a, a well established sort of icon of the reform community classical so i'm kind of fresh so in some ways people are just adjusting their antennas as to who the heck is this guy where is he going and but the the responses have been overwhelmingly uh very positive it's um not too often but at least i don't know once once a year once every other year i get a, a request to write a book on something from a publishing company so the idea that social media is something Feudal, it doesn't have attention. It's a place just for frivolous and you know that kind of writing that doesn't um, doesn't inspire greater conversations. My desire, as has been yours, is to use the platform that God has given us and say, God has given us the gift of words. Let's therefore steward these words well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that is a big critique is uh, using a serrated edge. So to speak, um, comes across as un-ungentle and at worst unChristlike, um, and it can it can actually harm our cause as we advance the kingdom. What do you make of that critique? Is there any water that that critique carries to you?
1: you know, a lot of the critiques that people make of the, let's say we're talking about the serrated edge, which is sort of the biblical defense of satire. I think Wilson wrote a book mm-hmm. about 100 pages in 2003, I believe. That particular approach, first of all, it has there's historical precedent for, it, right? Nobody's denied historical precedent. I mean, uh, you you can insult anybody with Luther quotes for the next ten thousand years, because they're right. they're just there. They're just there.
0: Yeah.
1: And I, I think the the frustration people have is that they have looked at rhetoric through the lens of their favorite Bible verse, and so if Ephesians four thirty two says be kind and tender hearted with one another, therefore Every kind of speech ought to fall into this kindness and tenderhearted motif. Furthermore, Mm. it has to fall into the way they define kindness and tenderheartedness. Right? Mm. Paul says a lot of uh, kind and gracious things in Galatians. And then on the other hand, he tells guys to go castrate themselves, mutilate themselves. So Paul, in some ways, defined his own terms, and we need to be cautious of that. But we do have a a homegrown definition, you know, thesaurus, which means that when we look at the scriptures, we just assume this is what the apostle means. My argument is sort of threefold. My argument is that we have the basis for a serrated, a a satirical, even a mockery sort of motif and rhetoric that is uh, grounded in an imitative theology, which I think the scriptures from, from very, very early on established this kind of motif. This is a longer conversation, Chase, but if you look at the structure of Genesis 1 and 2, there are authority structures, sun, moon, and stars ruling over the things of the earth. So there are inherent hierarchies, meaning Mm -hmm. that not all language is created equal. There are certain linguistic uh, flavors and fervor that we have to keep in mind that ought to reflect Mm -hmm. a position of authority over a position that is um, lesser. And so that's something to keep in mind. God himself... Uh, provides examples of curses in the Genesis account that, um, and I think if we are image bearers, that means we don't reflect God only in the things he does, but also in the things he says. And so mm-hmm. that in itself should establish a really beautiful theology of music because I, I believe that God sang the world to existence. So uh, music is the first form in which uh, humans, especially redeemed humans, uh, sort of imitate God. The, the second is a, a, a narratival theology. And I take that, I've been preaching to the Gospel of Mark much longer than my congregation would like me to. Yeah. But I've been preaching the Gospel of Mark for a while. And the thing you see in the Gospel of Mark is in some ways, it's a reenactment of Matthew. Matthew ends with go and conquer or go and make disciples. Well, Mark begins placing Jesus' itinerant ministry through this sense. This sense. He he goes to places and he makes disciples wherever he goes. Part of the making disciple process, this narratival process is that Jesus uses language in a very particular way. He's not generic about his speech. In fact, he he draws as he does in Matthew 23, but certainly throughout the gospel of Mark, uh, very harsh language to describe the religious leaders of the day who are leading the people to the precipice and to hell itself, making them twice the sons of Belial. So Jesus uses that language that's very acerbic, very abrasive and aggressive, and he does it with tremendous ease. Sometimes when he wants to deal with the intellects of the day, he brings a parable from Isaiah chapter 5 about the vineyard. He applies it in Mark chapter 12. Sometimes when he is absolutely furious, sometimes he will physically do things. He'll push his way into religious environments saying, you have pushed me to such a point that my rhetoric has now led me to overthrow tables. Um, and so that's a very important thing. Even though it's it's important also to note a little little nuance here that because our Lord does it, because Douglas Wilson does it, and because to a much much lesser extent I do it, doesn't mean that everybody ought to do it. I always tell folks that before Jesus overthrew tables, He spent three years loving, caring, shepherding, exercising, healing, et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah. If you just became a Christian yesterday and you've accepted Calvin into your heart, be very cautious <laughs> into how this sort of is applied, right? Um, right. I would say, okay, young man, um, I want you to clean toilet number 6 and 11 and then come back and I'll give you a few more tasks. And a healthy a healthy dose of that before he can sort of join the happy crowd of table turners. Sure. So, so imitative theology and narrative theology. And the, the third one is... Um, A malediction theology, which I think is brought out in Revelation 2 and 3 when Jesus offers several consequences to the churches, to the churches, right, to the seven churches, Mm. and dealing with seven churches in Asia Minor, seven current churches, our Lord doesn't waste any vocabulary. Again, you can be vomited, you can be cursed, you can be thrown out, exiled, excommunicated, and that's Jesus' Tender, hallmark language towards, let's say, Bible-believing churches, right? So that's the kind of the, the threefold approach, imitative, narratival, and malediction. I think, at least how I've, I've developed it, I am sure Douglas Wilson can say it much more eloquently, but I think that's a, a good way of beginning to see that this is not just a style we choose to um, to take people off, but right. it's a style that has a biblical rationale behind it and that bears good fruit, yeah. In the long term, because I always look at the, I always look at the trajectory. What kinds of people are surrounding themselves with this culture that we're talking about, hmm. and the kinds of people we need today are the kinds of men you mentioned here. The kinds of men who will love their wives, who will love their children, who will be in church on Sunday, who desire the good things though they may fail it many times, and who can defend their faith boldly. So you you want to draw men with that language that are going to pick up the sword, right, with one hand and the shovel in the other. They're ready to fight and they're ready to work at any moment's notice.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. And I loved how you broke it down into those three categories. I I anticipate hearing more about that through your writing because I think this is an important uh, topic to address. You know, one of the critiques I've gotten – and And, uh, you know, there's no need to name anyone that uh, that has made this critique of me. um, But is that this kind of writing and language uh, if the the, like, if I were to put the most precise critique on it, if my coworker comes across what you write online, they will never step foot in this church. That's been the critique. How if somebody said that to you, they come to your church. um, Maybe you don't get those type of people. how would you respond to that critique?
1: I think the first thing uh, to keep in mind is, you know, yeah, occasionally there are some folks who come in and say, I didn't like the way you said X, Y, or Z. And if I'm having a really bad day, I will say, well, you have no idea how much I held back. (laughs) Sure. There's so much I could have said. Um, But in in a typical happy day, I will say, well, I want you to see where this is headed and what kind of person this language is producing. If this language is producing a culture of cowards, that's a bad thing. The kinds of people who can say things from afar but not say things up close, mm. that's a dangerous thing. So you need to do what you have expressed so well in your in your book and Trinitarian Formation. You need to make sure that the words that are being spoken, so let's say the, the doctrinal dogma that is being spoken. I despise uh, leftist ideology, right? You want to make sure that that is translated or harmonized or moderated or balanced, however you want to phrase it, with acts of, of charity, acts of, of uh, a personal hospitality, so that people can see that language is very often used for a purpose, but it is um, it, it, is, it is, is given grounds, is given substance by the actions of God's people. Okay. So the reason I will tell this person, the reason I speak so uh, fervently, with so much fervor and perhaps dogma about these things that I oppose is because I believe these things are going to lead to a series of disastrous actions that can eventually take you to a trajectory that there is no return, mm. not just for you, but also for your children. Mm. So I want to I I inculcate the idea that the language I use is covenantal language this language is for you and your children, those who are far off. And I think once they see that, and it may take six months to a year, once they see the fruit of that taking place in their own congregations, their own little tribes, they begin to see, oh, which I've had happen before. I think now I understand. I thought you were just being harsh for the sake of being harsh. right? But now I see the intentionality behind it. I see the kinds of things you're trying to create from the language you use.
0: Yeah, that's that's really helpful. And I think that really putting uh, flesh on the bones of, of real life hospitality. Um, you know, we can often reduce people to their online presence or their writings or their thoughts spoken out loud. Um, and this happens to pastors all the time, not just through writing, but you'll see pastors, uh, just like when you were a little kid and you saw a teacher in the store and you're like, you're not supposed to be here. Uh, we can, we, we can dehumanize pastors to a point where it's like they, because they speak this way in the pulpit, that's the only way they operate. Um, and that's just not not true, and unfortunately, sometimes pastors don't help people along with that with the hospitality. I can be guilty of that of of uh of of not helping people along in that, but that's really helpful and i I think when you think generationally you know and how what what is loving to your neighbor would it be loving to your neighbor to to hide these truths and realities um and I don't think that would be uh and so Christians need to be built up in these ways of thinking, and like you said it some of my elders were were giving me some feedback and they're like well what do you expect from us on this and i was like i don't know just like follow god faithfully and like come to church and they're like okay but like do you need me to like write like you and speak like you in the workplace i'm like no like that's not the expectation like i have a place like god has given me this and if i were to go take your job you know, like my uh, my friend Matt, he's a, my co-pastor, and he's like, I probably wouldn't even be on social, like I like, but <laughs> but I feel a responsibility, hopefully a godly, limited, creaturely responsibility with what little I have, to make use of it, to be productive with it, and use the gifts that I have to redeem the time, and so I'm going to write this way, and I'm going to think this way, and uh, please provide me with feedback if I need to uh, if I contradict the Bible. I think one of the the final pieces to tie a bow on this topic, and then I want to get into one more real quick is uh does the kind of the binding nature of the writing for example even on this podcast calling out leftist ideology right uh which i would tend to agree with you on um people would be like that's just so uh ungentle or that that's that's a real uh roadblock for people ideologically they go it seems not gentle And so how can I be both like, because that that is what we're supposed to be is gentle and kind. How can I uh, be gentle and yet be strong and courageous and call out what I view as godless in the world? Don't those contradict each other? And you kind of offered a little bit of that earlier, where you talked about how we define kindness. But could you maybe elaborate on that for my listeners?
1: Well, let's take a practical example here from the Sermon of the mouth, right? Uh, when we think about evangelical talk about meekness, yes, okay, good. All right, that's a, a good. Almost always, we're thinking of this kind of tender-hearted person who just offers no offensive remark to anyone. Right. He's just meek. Well, in the Bible, meekness is a man like Moses, who very gladly saw the destruction of horses and chariots of the Egyptians, and who most likely offered a, uh, a lovely, hearty laughter when he saw the bodies of the Egyptians on the sea. So we, the meekest of all, of all men, of all the earth, right? Moses, mm-hmm. a man who killed, a man who spoke vehemently, who developed a, a, an inspired case law, 613 of them, who was given the task of being the ambassador of the Ten Words, that's the meekest man of all the earth. So we have, in some ways, we have developed a vocabulary that probably uh, fits better in the Disney realm yeah. than I think in the Torah, Tanakh realm, because the scriptures are very clear. If it is true that we build our theology on the basis of the language of the scriptures, then we have some caveats there, to some, some things to consider there. The response to that typically, Chase, says, well... We are to, we, but we, we're not like Jesus. We're not like Jesus. So we can't do what Jesus did. We're not the prophet Jeremiah uh, in Jeremiah 7. We're not, you know, the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37. We're not that. And I grant that, okay? I grant that. But at the same time, we don't apply the principle to the other things, right? right? Jesus loves. Jesus is a loving Lord. Nobody says, well, you don't want to imitate him because we're not like Jesus when he loves. So we have a tendency to, to, um, to make, and this is, I'm going to use this language here. We make an idol of Tim Tebow 316, yeah. but we have no interest in the language of Psalm 2, yeah. right? The nations conspire against God and His anointed, and God looks back and He ha 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 to their dispositions and wicked schemes. And we say to ourselves, well, you know, That's just something that the God of the Old Testament did. And then little by little, unbeknownst to us, of course, because all these things are very subtle, like satire. They're very subtle. But before we know it, we have developed a very healthy dose of Gnosticism. And we have practically become Marcionites, Uh, even though it's a foolish form of Marcionism because Jesus is in the line of Jeremiah and Isaiah and John the Forerunner. He's not working against them, but he is literally borrowing their style in his interactions with the people. So I think that's the kind of thing we have to keep in mind is that language is given to us. Language is developed through the normativity of scriptures. And if we are the kinds of people who fear using the biblical language, I think in some ways we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Because in some ways, it's, it, what we're saying is that we don't rely in the rhetoric of the scriptures to be imitative. That it's something so abstract that only some kind of elite is able to use it that that's a real danger and i think um, you and i can see very much where that has led many evangelicals in our day and um and i'm not talking about david french only sure. but i am talking about david french
0: <laughs> right. i think of it this way like it it's as if we're in a war and we've uh we've we have ammo that we could use to to fight and uh we're just afraid that it's going to be too effective and uh, we're afraid of the yeah, impact it's yeah. going to have. And instead, we're we're like, well, we've got to use the swords. That's what's most proper. And it's like, you've got the big gun. Use the big gun yeah. to mow down the schemes of the enemy. Um, and we've got the word of yeah. God. And I feel like so much of the church has been castrated by this feminized kind of discourse where um, we we t- typically think of church. I mean, even the, the office of pastors typically portrayed in media and historically as kind of this neutered, um, person who has no, de- no desires. Um, is not a real human is kind of this other, like amorphous, androgynous figure. Um, where historically we, let I me mean, just think of Spurgeon. That's a lot of reform guys, favorite guys, Spurgeon and the way he talks yeah. and the way he writes and the creativity. And, uh, even the way he, uh, he trained preachers to preach, you know, a very masculine man. And, uh, and so I'm, you know, hopefully the, the object isn't to be a provocateur, for the for the sake of pro, uh, provoking other than to provoke godly thought and godly action um, and i think you're doing a great job of that so i don't encourage anyone uh, to go follow you particularly on facebook uh, you've got the Kyperion commentary as well that's where you do a lot of writing right
1: yeah i have around 20 guys that write for a kyperian a lot of them are just uh, well-known scholars great guys and uh, that's been a, just a great source of encouragement. My desire through Kaiperian when I started 10 years ago, first of all, I was very boring to write alone, so I brought a lot of good friends alongside. And I think my desire was always to treat that sort of endeavor ecclesiastically. Mm-hmm. So if you want to make me really happy is when a pastor says, we use this essay for a men's get-together, a pub night, or a cigar night. That to me, um, even if it happens only once every six months, that, you know, that pays the whole. It's the price of the game right there, and so that's been a, a good good outlet for me and um, a bunch of other other fellows that's to great. write.
0: I, I wanted to close out on one thing, and I want you to give me okay. kind of a succinct argument in uh, for post millennialism. And the reason I want to do that is because I wrote a book on discipleship, and I, I was uh, solidly all mill. Um, so when I read the Great Commission, I'm reading it as make disciples of all people, right, all individuals and it's a very individual and then i've i've started to preach i preach a sermon on psalm 2 at a church i was never invited back after that uh because it was very (laughs) you know uh, very assertive um and i would preach it again i I think it's a, a fairly good sermon um and then we talked about the nations and and uh and kind of revelation um and so i'm i'm dipping my toe in the water i'm comfortable with it i see it in church history it's not that i'm uh opposed to it uh i'm really not opposed to any eschatology per se, um, except for dispensational, uh, pre-millennialism. But, um, what is like, were you always post-mill or what, where did you come from and what got you to be post-mill?
1: Yeah, my story is I was a teenage dispensationalist and, um, I drank the Kool-Aid, honestly, because I didn't know there were sure. other Kool-Aids to drink. And so I just thought that was it. I didn't know. And then one day I heard this uh, baptist minister talk about post-millennialism and he he prefaced it by saying oh and by the way these guys existed but world war ii essentially annihilated all of them the world war ii was the thing that just uh, took away all the the joy and the optimism that Mm post-millennialists had and so that was an interesting and so he actually in some ways stirred me to say what on earth is this and that led me to Gary North, B.B. Warfield, Ken Gentry, Gary DeMar. And so it was a, um, after I drank that entire gallon in the space of a few minutes, I was drunk on it. And it was the kind of drunkenness that had no sobriety <laughs> the next day. It was just, I'm on it, and there's no turning back. But it was a happy, it yeah, was drunk yeah. in the spirit, you know? So it was, it was, a, it was a happy thing. And speaking of the Spirit, I think that's kind of the language we need to keep in mind here. That the Spirit who hovered over the first heavens and new earth has promised to hover over the heavens and the earth Mm -hmm. till the end of history. And I like the assurance that the Spirit gives more than I like the assurances that Hal Lindsey gives. The assurance that the Spirit gives is that the Spirit will always be over-authoritatively ruling over man and the affairs of humankind. Now, that would be, in some ways, a very hopeless effort if it were not for the ascended Messiah. So the reason I'm a post-millennialist is because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus and the bodily ascension of Jesus. If Jesus had risen from the dead ghostly or spiritually only, if he had ascended ghostly or spiritually only, I would be happy something else. I wouldn't be that. But the physicality of the resurrection and the ascension, the fact that Jesus sit to the right hand of the Father with scars in his hands, to me proves that Jesus is in the business of fixing uh, history scars. And that means that the illustration I've used, Chase, and I'll just I close with this here, but the illustration I use is that the difference between postmillennialism and other eschatological positions is that for Amil and Premil, Christ comes back at the end of history to rescue a bruised, beaten hmm. bride, A bruised, beaten bride, a bride that has suffered persecution, sword, famine, nakedness, all these things. Postmillennialism says that Christ comes to receive a glorious bride, a bride that has been, Ephesians 5, washed, sanctified, beautified by the preaching of the word, by the waters of baptism. And so the end of history is a processional into eternity. Whereas for other positions, the end of history becomes a rescue movement of Jesus so that eternity can begin. And so the postmillennialist is hopeful, not just because he is in a happy mood all the time, but because he sees the promise of the gospel that the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent, and that that has mm. truly already happened. Romans 16, Hebrews 2 14 has truly already happened at the crucifixion. And we live from the crucifixion to the end of history in the phase where Christ is subduing all his enemies under his feet, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, 26. And that incremental historical optimism will unfold from the day Jesus died, on Good Friday, and it will continue to the glorification of the world at the end of history. So that history moves not so much from pain to pain, from suffering to suffering, but from glory to to glory Amen, to glory.
0: brother. I think that's beautiful, and I, you know, I, our our church is not uh, postmill per se, um, and we've planted churches and we've had some good conversations because one of our preachers on staff, he's like, I'm not postmill. I'm like, I don't need you to be postmill. Just be an optimistic, mill Like I'm not looking for you to subscribe <laughs> to a system. I'm looking for you to <clears throat> preach the Bible with hope that Jesus is reigning right now. And what changed my mind on this was thinking about how we engage uh, Christian or lost people who are enemies of God and how they're enemy combatants. And we need to set them free. But ultimately it's like an insurgency. Mm-hmm. Like they, they are fighting against who's in charge right now, which is Jesus Christ. Um, and so that's just a different mm-hmm. way than, than I used to think of it, which is like kind of like the forces of good and evil are fighting now. We'll see who wins. It's like, no, Jesus won. Like he's already, it's done. It right, is right. finished. And, uh, and so I don't need, yeah, like I said, I've, one of our church funders is pre-mill and, you know, we'll work on that, but I'm happy to link arms with him, but it's given me, (laughs) I mean, it's really changed my life in terms of understanding the Bible theology and giving me hope in Christ that that's contagious, I think. So, um, well, thanks for sharing that with me. Hopefully maybe we'll get some, uh, some more people kind of thinking that way. Um, thanks for the time. I'll drop a Twitter link, a a link to your Twitter in here. Um, is there anywhere else besides Facebook, Twitter, Kyperion that people should, uh, keep in touch with you?
1: I have a private blog. It's called URIBRITO.com, U-R-I-B-R-I-T-O.com, where I usually offer some, as I'm working through my sermon text during the week or other ideas, I kind of just post some random exegetical notes there. So if somebody's really want to nerd out on on biblical theology and textual things, some cultural things as well, that's a good place to go. I'll also have a a separate podcast called The Perspectivalist. I'll put all the episodes there on URIBRITO.com. So there's just different... Uh, different different layers uh, available there and I tried to sort of um, uh, saturate my audience with whatever they want. And uh, I try to be all things to all people. And uh, I tried to offer sort of a, a perspectivalist approach. How about that, Chase?
0: That's great. I love that approach. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for being on the show. If you're a listener, I would love a a great rating on this episode. I had a great time. Hopefully you had a great time listening. Share it with a friend. Spark a conversation. If you've got a friend who hates Doug Wilson, share this episode. (laughs) See see what they think of that and uh, grab a beer with them, buy them a beer and see what they think. Because I really do want to spark conversations, help people grow in godliness. I've also got the Patreon link in the bio. I would love your support, need your support. So sign up there at any dollar amount. That's going to help me keep bringing great content to you. And uh, next we've got on the show Clifford, I think his name is Humphreys. I think you might know him, Yuri. Um, A little bit. All right, great. And so we've got him coming up on the show, and uh, you can look forward to that. But until then, we'll see you next time.